Well, good evening. Uh, recently, as I guess most of you will know, we've had a series of Sunday morning sermons that have been designed to remind us as 21st century Christians living in an affluent and materialistic society of the need to slow down and to simplify our lifestyles. It's unlikely, however, that such a message would have had a high priority in the Apostle Paul's teaching program in the first century church in Thessalonica. Because whilst there were probably a handful of wealthy, high-placed believers in the church, for the greater part, like most first century churches, the congregation would have been made up of hard-working, ordinary folk, people living a hand-to-mouth existence, often facing extreme hardship and opposition and persecution, many of them indeed being slaves. And rather the message that they needed to hear in order to encourage them to endure and to keep their spirits up was one that emphasized that they had a short, uncertain earthly existence, maybe, but one day it would be replaced by an altogether different and exciting experience, eternal life. And so it is that we find that the Apostle Paul, as he comes towards the end of this first letter to the church at Thessalonica, turns to a section of teaching, as we're going to read in a mo, on that great Christian hope, the hope of the triumphant return to this earth of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then of an eternity to be spent with him. And perhaps just one of the many reasons why we as 21st century Christians need to slow down and to take time and to simplify our lives is to make room for this hope, to influence the lives that we lead. Because so often the tendency is there for our materialistic comforts and lifestyles to anesthetize this basic human need for hope so that it only, as it were, bubbles to the surface when significant adverse events happen, such as the five Ds, death, disease, debt, divorce, and other disasters. So tonight, the verses we're going to be exploring together focus on the Christian hope, the only hope that can truly build endurance in our lives. So if you'd like to turn to the passage we're going to be looking at, it's to be found on page 1188 of the Bibles. And if anybody hasn't got a Bible handy and you want one, if you just pop your hand up, there's a few floating around here in the seats that aren't occupied, and I'm sure we can ferry them back. Does anybody want to get a hand on a Bible? Everybody's okay. Right. Well, you'll see, if you look down on that page, 1188, that the heading midway down the column on the left is the coming of the Lord, which is what we're going to be talking about tonight. And the latter part of chapter 4, the first part of this section, is all about very basic teaching, which, Jesus, uh, that, which Paul wants to give to these folks about Christ's return and about the secure future to which they can look forward. And then in the opening verses of chapter 5, Paul, in a very practical way, seeks to apply this teaching by emphasizing and explaining the sort of lives that his readers ought to be living in the light of this great Christian hope. So let's just read this together. Verse 13, chapter 4, midwave down the left-hand column, page 1188. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. 
according to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left to the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, because you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like, like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are now doing. It does seem, just reading between the lines, uh, both in this epistle and the next epistle, that Paul was prompted to write as he did here, because some of the Christians in Thessalonica, having heard teaching about the return of Christ, had latched on to the idea that it was very imminent, likely to occur within their lifetimes. In fact, some, it seems, had perhaps even given up work and were just sitting, waiting for it to happen. But as the days and the months drew on, and life, of course, didn't stand still, Christians began to die. The expectation of life in those days would have been probably 30 years or so, so it was inevitable that people were beginning to die. And for this reason, there was arising within the church genuine concerns about what had happened to these folk, their loved ones, who had passed away. Were they now going to somehow miss out because they hadn't survived to see the return of Christ? If you were fortunate enough to be alive on the day of, of glory, that would be fine, but if not, what? And Paul, in trying to answer these questions, begins to address their concerns in these verses with two negatives and then two positives. The two negatives come in verse 13, the two positives in verse 14. So looking at verse 13, the first negative is this, don't be ignorant. Don't be ignorant, he says, about those who have fallen in sleep. Paul, in his letters, was really very fond of this phrase, I don't want you to be ignorant. He uses it a number of times in several of his letters. For instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that great chapter of teaching on spiritual gifts, verse verse. Now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. In Romans 11, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul's priority that his readers shouldn't be ignorant about God's great plan of salvation begins, we don't want you to be ignorant. And so it's worth noting in passing here that Paul had a real determination to combat ignorance amongst the believers 
because it went very much against the religious vogue of Greek society, which was all for religions which were based on mystery and intrigue and secret ceremonies and obscure initiation rites. But no, for Paul, the basic facts of this gospel that he was sharing with them was, uh, were open and available. They were crystal clear, easy to understand. So, and as here in 1 Thessalonians, on this important matter of what's going to happen to men and women, believers in Christ who have fallen asleep, that is to say, who have died. Now, you may have noticed that as we read through chapters 4 and 5 just a moment or two ago, Paul had quite a lot to say about people who were asleep. And he, in the way that is so typical of him in his letters, seems to delight in a subtle interplay of the various meanings of one simple, single Greek word which he uses, which is translated here as sleep. And that word is catuendo. And most commonly in literature, this was used of the normal physiological process, which hopefully we all enjoy for a few hours each night, of simply gonking out, going to sleep. But it was also used to describe anyone who had died. They were sleeping, you see, in a different sense. Our English word cemetery is actually derived from another Greek word, which means literally a sleeping place. And this reinforces the idea of some of these sleepers being people who had died. And of course, Paul in his writings clearly gets great delight in referring to Christian believers who have died as folk who are asleep. For him, this was an accurate description, because one day at the day of resurrection, they were going to come awake again. But Paul also uses this word catuendo, particularly as we shall see in chapter 5, to describe men and women who might be said to be spiritually asleep. And for him, there seems to be two levels of this spiritual stupor. On the one hand, unbelievers, people who have not come to faith, not responded to the gospel, they are asleep in the sense that they are spiritually dead in their sins. But then there are Christians, believers, not spiritually dead, the spirit living with them, and yet, in reality, they are spiritually stuporous, spiritually knocked off, spiritually non-functional because they are not living out their faith actively day by day within the body of Christ. But we'll return to these ideas in a few moments' time when we get into chapter 5. But let's come back to verse 13, because first of all, having declared that he doesn't want these people in Thessalonica to be ignorant about those who've died in the faith, he goes on to a second negative in verse 13, and that is he doesn't want them to grieve. But of course, there's an important proviso, and is that he does not want them to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Clearly, it would have been inappropriate and heartless of him to urge his readers not to grieve for those that they loved who had passed away. The Bible, of course, has absolutely nothing to say against grieving, even for those who cherish the hope of resurrection and eternity with Christ. Quite the opposite, in fact. The shortest verse in the Bible portrays to us our Savior as somebody who grieved. It says, Jesus wept at the grave of his friend Lazarus. No, says Paul, by all means grieve, but not, of those, not as those with no hope. Most of us, I guess, have had the desperate experience of seeking to share grief with those who have no hope, for those for whom the grave and the crematorium are the end, the final farewell. I can vividly recall the very first experience of such hopeless grief that I had, just a little lad, 
an uncle who died towards the end of the war. And I remember my grandmother, who sadly had no faith, standing, well, she didn't stand, she was held up by two strong men on either side at the edge of the grave, sobbing her heart out. She could not let her beloved son go away. She had to be restrained from going into the grave. And this made an incredible impression upon my young mind, which I have to say stays with me even to this day whenever I attend a funeral, particularly a funeral around a graveside. And I guess that there's many of us here tonight who can emphasize with experiences and reactions like that. And yet, says Paul, don't grieve like that. Indeed, you don't need to grieve like that because you are not ignorant of the final outcome for those who have fallen asleep in the Lord. But very quickly after the couple of negatives in verse 13, he moves on to some confident, positive, optimistic things in verse 14 declaring and asserting, we believe that after he had died, Jesus rose again, and that on the basis of that hope, you you and I can have confidence that those who have died in the Lord are only sleeping and will like Jesus experience resurrection when he returns. And this is the reality, of course, which the Apostle argues particularly forcibly in that great resurrection, chapter 1 Corinthians 15. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, then how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead, that is to say of other dead people who believe in him? If there is no resurrection of the dead, said Paul, then not even Christ has been raised. And the consequence of that is, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Just in passing, it's interesting to note that although in these verses Paul speaks almost universally of believers who have died as being asleep, he is quite adamant in verse 14, Jesus died. Jesus died, and one wonders perhaps why he was so evident. Why did he just say when Jesus fell asleep? And I guess it was because in his day, as in our day, there are those who seek to dismiss the physical resurrection of Jesus, trying to say that it's some simple act of resuscitation of a brave man who was just simply in a deep sleep or unconscious because of pain or drugs. But Paul is quite clear from the first-hand reports that he has had from Christ's disciples who were there at the day that Christ was dead, but that God's power raised him to resurrection life. Well, then continuing on in the chapter, Paul describes in simple words what is going to happen on this great day, this day of the Lord. The Lord himself, he says, will come down from heaven with a loud command, presumably from the archangel, and a trumpet call, and the nature of the command and the strength of the trumpet blast will, simply, uh, will sufficient, be sufficient, uh, literally, to wake the dead. And therefore, those for whom these Christians in Thessalonica were most concerned, namely those who had already died in the faith, he says they're actually going to come alive first. And they're going to meet Christ first before those who are still alive who will then be taken up into the air to be reunited with them. And just in case some of the folks who were reading this may have been thinking, well, that's all very fanciful. That's just very nice wishful thinking on Paul's part. We note that he precedes his description of events by assuring his readers that all that he has to say on this subject, in verse 15 he says it, is by the word of the Lord by the word of the Lord. We are, are of course, now well aware from the later documents 
that we have available to us later than this uh, Galatians, uh, this Thessalonian letter, that Paul, that Jesus had spoken uh, reassuringly during his ministry on a number of occasions, such as in John's Gospel, chapter 14, about the fact that he was going to prepare a place for them in heaven and then coming to return to take them there. And in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus records uh, these, these, these things. He says, The Son of Man will come in the clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels with a great trumpet call, and they will gather those who have believed in him. But it is significant to note, as I've already indicated, as we were reminded by Christoph on the first evening when he introduced this letter to us, that this letter of Paul to the Thessalonians was almost certainly the first piece of the, old, of the New Testament that was written. Probably ten years before Matthew wrote the Gospel and recorded those words of Jesus about the Son of Man coming in great glory, and twenty years before John wrote about my father's house has many mansions and I go to prepare a place for you there. And yet Paul is able to say here that this is according to the Lord's own word. And so it's obvious, isn't it, that they must have been well known and widely circulated as pre-gospel documents of the sayings of Jesus within the churches. And so Paul can confidently conclude his little account here in chapter 4 with encourage one another with these words. One commentator has observed that Paul's primary purpose in writing these verses is not actually to provide an exact chronology of future events, but rather to provide a basis for mutual encouragement to endure. So let's move on now into chapter 5. And we find that uh, in chapter 5, Paul first of all deals with this burning issue of when when was all this going to happen? Now, about, now, brothers, about times and dates, we don't need to write to you because you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night while people are saying peace and destruction, a peace and safety destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. And the Thessalonian church actually was not the only one in the first century that was asking this sort of question. There were other churches, as we read through the uh, letters of Paul uh, and the Acts that we can glimpse, were asking questions about, well, when is Christ going to come back? How is Christ coming back? And so on and so forth. And down through the 2,000 years since then, many other Christian communities quite reasonably have asked this question. But sometimes, unfortunately, folk have allowed themselves to be diverted into this guessing game. It's preoccupied their time. It's preoccupied and dominated their ministry even to the extent that they've given up work and gone and sat on mountaintops waiting for Christ to return, all, of course, thus far to no avail. And as I indicated earlier, there are indications in these Thessalonian letters that this was just what was happening in the church there. Now, at first glance, Paul's reply to these questions about timing seems to be about rather dismissive. Now, brothers, about the time and dates, we have no need to write to you. But he wasn't actually being secretive or superior because on the contrary, as he goes on to remind them in verse 2, you are well aware all of the answer already. In the exact words, he says, you know very well that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night and so on. And of course, we've already noted that this uh, letter 
to, to the Thessalonians was written before the Gospels, before the Acts of the Apostles. And yet again, Paul has been able to refer to the words that Jesus spoke. For instance, Paul's instruction, illustration here in verses 2 and 3 of the sudden unexpectedness of Christ's return, likening it to the thief in the night or the labor pains of the pregnant woman was subsequently, as we know, attributed by the Gospel writers to the lips of Jesus himself. Some of the Gospel writers also record the apostles questioning Jesus about his return. For instance, on one occasion, Lord, are you now going to restore Israel? By implication, if not now, well, then when? And on another occasion, Master, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus did sometimes give an answer. He did give indications of the kind of events that these people might expect prior to his return. But always he concluded with remarks like this. Matthew 24, verse 36. No one knows the day or the hour, not even me, but only my Father. Or in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, actually the very last words we have recorded from the lips of Jesus, it's not for you, to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by his own authority. But always Jesus' priority in discourses such as these was to emphasize that far more important than knowing when was being ready when it happened. He constantly urged watchfulness. And essentially, this is the gist of Paul's message in the remaining verses of uh, this teaching on the return of Christ in chapter 5. Paul was emphasizing the need for the Christian to be in a state of constant readiness. I understand that some Christians find it helpful. Maybe there's even somebody in the room here tonight to wear a little bracelet with the letters WWJD embossed upon it. Anybody here brave enough to admit to that? No. Well, I, I gather it is quite a vote, particularly amongst young people. And it's an acronym, as you may well know, for what would Jesus do? And in this situation, in this place, confronted with this problem, you look at the bracelet and you just think and you just pray, well, Jesus, what would you do in this situation? But I believe that if Paul were here tonight handing out bracelets, then I think that in the context of our subject this evening, they would be engraved with W-I-J-C-T. W-I-J-C-T. What if Jesus came today? If Jesus came today, would he be happy? Would he be satisfied? Would he be pleased? Indeed, would we be ready to meet him? Would we be happy with the places and the pursuits in which he found us engaged, the conversations, the business deals, and so on? There's a Christian school in Bristol that has a motto over its door, and it's lovely at Moreland Drive, isn't it, with the motto that you see as you walk in that reminds you of the Christian ethos of the school. Well, at Bristol they have this motto over the door, live as though Jesus had died yesterday, risen today, and will return tomorrow. And as Paul tries now in these final verses to hammer home what we might call his Boy Scout message of be prepared, he does so in the final paragraph by presenting his readers with a set of challenging alternatives and contrasts. In verse 4, he, he's asking them and challenging them, if Jesus were to return, will you be surprised or will you be ready? Will he find you living in the light of the day or in the dark of night? Would he find you alert or asleep? Would he find you self-controlled 
in possession of your faculties, or would he find you like the drunk? Moreover, will your future appointment be with wrath and with judgment, or with salvation? Spiritually, are you awake, or are you asleep? And all of these challenging questions that he poses as he writes are designed to urge upon his readers watchfulness, readiness, preparedness for the day of the Lord for Christ's return. We might summarize Paul's message to those Thessalonian Christians and indeed to us today in this way. If we are those who God in his mercy has delivered from his wrath and his judgment, who are therefore now today enjoying his salvation, so that we're no longer living in the dark night of sin, but in the light of his presence, then it should mean that we will be sober, self-controlled, with faculties alert and awake, so that walking in the Spirit, we shall always be ready for Christ's return. As Christians, we have been given this enormous blessing and privilege of a hope that transcends the grave, this hope of the return of the Lord Jesus and of eternity with him. And it is this confident hope that has enabled Christians down through the years and that will enable us to endure anything and everything that life may throw against us, whether it be bereavement or suffering or opposition or persecution or the confrontation with death itself. So no wonder Paul's last observation on this subject in verse 11 is that we should be encouraging and building each other up with this hope. But equally, we must never forget that with this great blessing and privilege comes also the challenge that we live responsibly, always alert and ready. W-I-J-C-T. What if Jesus came tonight? Well, of course, that would be fine because we'd all be here singing hymns, worshipping with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we think that would be fine. But what if Jesus returned Uh, tomorrow morning or tomorrow afternoon or Tuesday when we're at work or at school or at college or at home or at our recreational pursuits, uh, what would he find? When he he came, would he be satisfied uh, at what he found? And indeed, would we be? That seems to me to be one of the challenges that comes through from the consolation of the Christian hope. It's a wonderful privilege, but every privilege brings with it a responsibility. What? if Jesus came tonight. And I'll take orders for bracelets later, maybe. I don't know. But it would be quite useful, wouldn't it, for us to have something like that, just to remind us when we're in a particular situation, what would Jesus say if he came tonight or today and found me in this situation? So shall we just bow in a moment of prayer? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful hope that you have given to us this hope of eternal life with yourself, which will begin as you come and you take us to be with yourself. We thank you that this is a hope that through the centuries has enabled so many men and women in difficult, dark situations to endure. Forgive us that sometimes the sheer comfort of our lives means that we are quite happy as we are and we don't really look forward to this hope as we ought. But we just pray this evening that you will have opened our eyes again to the wonder of the hope of your return and of an eternity with you and that you'll challenge us always to be ready because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.